May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you to whoever always leaves a glass of water up here. For almost 20 years, my husband John and I lived in a co-housing community in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now there are several co-housing communities in the Portland metro area as well, so perhaps you have heard of that concept or maybe even lived in a co-housing community yourself. But in case the term co-housing is new to you, let me encourage you to think of it as an intentional neighborhood. My own co-housing community consisted of 12 households, each with adjoining but separate homes, sharing the maintenance of the property, and eating meals together three nights a week. It took some significant uh, commitment to live this way, but a lot of good things happen over a shared meal, as we Episcopalians well know. However, Choosing to live together so intentionally, in our case, in a collection of renovated lofts purpose-built for living in community, that cuts against the prevailing culture, American culture of individualism. And the architects who brought the co-housing concept to the US from Denmark were actually our neighbors where we lived, and one of them used to entertain us over our shared dinners with the questions that people asked as new co-housing communities were forming. They always worry about the possibility of bad neighbors, Chuck Durrett, this architect, said. For example, they'll ask, what if I invest all my money in this community and my neighbor turns out to be a problem? I'll confess he actually used a saltier word than problem. Use your imagination. And my neighbor, the co-housing architect, would respond with a kind of theatrical sympathy. Oh, that would be bad, he'd confess. So very bad. In fact, I can only think of one thing that would be worse than moving into a neighborhood and discovering that your neighbor is a problem. And that's moving into the neighborhood and discovering that you're the problem. <laughs> you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, counsels the letter of James. And if my neighbor's story, or, rally, or actually my own experience, has any wisdom for us today, it's actually that it's pretty hard to love either, either neighbor or self very well. And that's why the counsel is repeated over and over in the Bible. From Leviticus chapter 19, you shall not bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Or from Mark 12 with parallels in Matthew, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater. Or from Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And 
from Romans 13, owe nothing to anyone except love for one another, for the one who loves their neighbor has fulfilled the law. Leviticus, the oldest of these sources, expands on the commandment in this way. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself because you were aliens in the land of Egypt and I am the Lord your God. That is to say we love our neighbors, even the ones who may seem problematic because of, for example, their immigration status. We love them because they are like us and we are like them. None of us are by virtue of our birth or our good manners or our political party any more or less valuable in God's eyes than our most problematic neighbor. It's actually kind of a hard truth to accept. On my better days, I'm probably willing to be kind to my problematic neighbor, but I'll confess that most of the time I don't really want to be like them or learn from them. And although I'll confess I'm going out on a bit of a theological limb here, it seems like that kind of vulnerable neighborliness was pretty hard for Jesus as well. So we proclaim him God incarnate, and yet in today's gospel lesson, we encounter Jesus being fully human in his capacity to radically underestimate the inclusive love of God. It took a problematic neighbor, a woman, a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, to remind him of who he was and what he was called to do. Recall that the two healing stories we heard today occurred as Jesus was traveling to Galilee by an oddly circuitous route. He went from Tyre in the west to Sidon in the north and then east to the Decapolis. And Mark is kind of very oddly specific in his travel directions for no apparent reason except to let us know, perhaps to let us know, that, God, that Jesus was broadly circumnavigating his home neighborhood. He took the long way through the borderlands where Jews and Gentiles lived in uneasy proximity. These were villages and towns full of people who thought that the others were a problem. Neighborhoods where a Gentile woman had no business approaching a Jewish rabbi, much less insisting that her daughter had as much right to God's healing as the children of Israel. But she told him anyway, and Jesus praised her for the courage and wisdom of her words. It was, in fact, her boldness of speech. Jesus said nothing about her faith in Mark's version. It was her boldness of speech that expanded his imagination and showed him that yet more grace was possible. He listened and truly heard her plea. And because of that, he came to understand his own mission in a new and more generous way. And I find myself thinking, if that's not the reason why Mark pairs these two healing stories we just heard, was it that mother whose brave words opened Jesus' ears and hearts 
heart, who then enabled Jesus to pass along the gift of openness to a mute and deaf man, Ephatha, people of God, be opened. Now, problematic people, problematic neighbors, problematic people, that's all of us, at least some of the time. We have to entrust our vulnerabilities to each other. We kind of have no other choice because for the things that really count, we can rarely get there by ourselves. Notice that the child was healed because her mother entrusted her to a Jewish rabbi and refused to be dissuaded. And the deaf man's ears were opened because his friends brought him to Jesus. The fact that we need family, friends, neighbors to heal us is not news to we Trinitarians. We are bringing people to Jesus every time we welcome one another, invite each other to a gathering or a class, give each other a ride, or visit one another in the hospital. Our new neighborhood ministry initiative, which launches this very Sunday with Neighbors at the Commons, our Welcome Back event, it's one of the ways in which we entrust ourselves and each other to Jesus. The simple act of knowing which Trinitarians live nearby to us, enhanced by the new online tools designed to help us keep us connected to each other on an ongoing basis, all this means that we can show up for each other in powerfully healing ways. We can listen to the worried mothers, pray for the struggling children, bear witness to the disabled and the doubtful that the Lord indeed lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord cares for the stranger. He sustains the orphan and widow, as our psalmist says. Yes, that is exactly what God does through us. So, in preparation for today's neighborhood ministry launch, I've been spending a lot of time with my hardworking ministry teams, and you guys are hardworking, to equip leaders for our 40-plus neighborhood groups. And that has had me scouring my bookshelves for appropriate prayers, and I rediscovered that our Book of Common Prayer, that's the red book in front of you that we never open in church. It's really handy. <laughs> it's chock full of prayers for local government, for agriculture, for cities, for towns, for rural areas. And that's because one of the great gifts of the Anglican theological tradition is our fidelity to our local place, right where we are, perhaps because the historic English understanding of parish was coterminous with neighborhood, Tyre and Tigard. Sidon, Sullivan's Gulch, Galilee, Goose Hollow, we Episcopalians believe that the places we inhabit are the places where God shows up, the places where we are called to live out our faith. Trinitarians, we are Christ in our neighborhoods. We are called to be Christ to our problematic neighbor and also to let our neighbors minister to us when we have a problem or when we are the problem. Whatever our sort or condition, whether we're cheeky or silent or sick, God will give us the grace to love each other just as we are and just 
where we are. Not because it's easy, but it's because it's what our Bible tells us to do. Listen again. You shall love your neighbor. There is no other commandment greater. Owe nothing to one another except to love one another. The one who loves their neighbor has fulfilled the law. And who knows? In the process, we might just encounter the neighbor who opens our heart like a problematic woman once opened Jesus' heart and discover that our capacity to love one another and ourselves is bigger than we ever imagined. People of God, amen? Amen. Then go love your neighbor.